So, a meal with Jesus. This is our uh, second of our weeks uh, looking at these meal times uh, with Jesus. And as Nathan said last week when he began this series, meals with Jesus were extraordinary events. You can almost believe that Jesus eats his way through all of the Gospels. If you read the Gospels, you see they're just filled with times when he sits down and he's eating with these people and meeting with these people and drinking with those people. Jesus has a casual approach to life and he's always engaging with people through the opportunity to sit down and to eat. Uh, our leadership teams, leadership teams of the church, we used to meet upstairs in, uh, in a hall at the top. And uh, we used to sit round. Um, we used to sit round a, a kind of board table and discuss. And then someone had the great idea when we built the uh, coffee house that we should move down. We should start um, uh, an hour earlier. So on the second Monday of the month, instead of starting at seven thirty upstairs, we start at six thirty downstairs, and we always start with a meal. And it completely transforms any conversation, doesn't it? Because you're a bunch of friends sat around a meal and sat around some wine. And then in that context, you discuss. It completely revolutionizes everything. So Jesus spends a lot of time um, eating and drinking. And sometimes eating and drinking with all the people that he wasn't supposed to be eating and drinking with. Now, I grew up. As a Baptist, I'm still a Baptist minister. Our church is still formally part of the Baptist denomination. I'm a Baptist. And uh, I became a Baptist when I became a Christian. I didn't realize I was becoming a Baptist. I just decided to follow Jesus and got to be a Baptist along the way, if you see what I mean. And I soon learned from the church I went to the rules of being a Baptist. Besides following Jesus, there were some key points. Baptists do not drink. Baptists do not dance. That's because they're mostly incapable of doing so. <laughs> Baptists don't drink, don't dance, and in those days we didn't chew either. Chewing, uh, chewing gum or bubble gum was completely disrespectful, just as it was to ever see a woman wearing trousers. I remember when I was a teenager going to a prayer meeting and a lady in our church being asked to leave because she'd offended God by turning up in trousers. I mean, like, can you believe it? The great news is that since those days, God's really chilled out. And now, <laughs> you know, he's gone all kind of liberal, hasn't he? He kind of lets women turn up with trousers and without hats and whatever next. You know, kind of. There you go. God maturing slowly. <laughs> or perhaps not. Perhaps us. And uh, one of the, so the big thing was Baptists didn't drink. I mean, we got thirsty sometimes, but there you go. No, we didn't drink alcohol. It was a really serious tenant of being a Baptist uh, when I was uh, in my teens. And then I um, moved, uh, well, I became a Baptist minister. I trained as a Baptist minister. I went uh, to Tunbridge in Kent to work for um, a big Baptist church there just before setting up Oasis. Tunbridge Baptist Church actually helped uh, me set up Oasis and, and various people from Tunbridge Baptist Church are still involved in our governance to this day, which is fantastic. But Tunbridge Baptist Church is a huge church in what is the kind of Bible Belt, you know, kind of 
basically the biggest churches in this country, something we should really think about, are just inside or just outside the M25 or in Kensington. That's, that's where they are. That's a big issue for us to think about. So um, Tunbridge Baptist Church, just outside the M25, you know, Seven Oaks, Tunbridge, Tunbridge Wells, all those places. And uh, even in those days, it was a huge church, and it's a wonderful church. In fact, they just asked me uh, this week, wrote to me again to ask me if I'd uh, go back and uh, speak there. So all these years, I left that church 34 years ago, and they're, they're still generously involved with Oasis. But the thing about being part of the Bible Belt is you're not normally on the cutting edge of things. Because the cutting edge of things, you know, it's pain and it's struggle, isn't it, that creates growth actually in the end, because when you're in a situation where you're having to rethink constantly everything that you're doing, that brings you to the forefront of how do we deal with this new situation, that new situation, you grapple with your theology in a new way. That's hardly likely to happen in the comfortable places where churches are packed to the doors. So it was that I found myself as uh, one of the ministers, the assistant minister of Tunbridge Baptist Church. And uh, the senior minister had a most unbecoming name for a Baptist. Uh, he was called, he died just a few years ago. In fact, the library in Oasis College is dedicated to him. His name was David Beer. <laughs> now, being called Beer in a Baptist church, it's not a good start, is it? And uh, actually, uh, David Beer... Uh, had a father-in-law that used to come to the church, and his name was Harry Cork. <laughs> Believe it or not, <laughs> it's absolutely true. That is absolutely true. And Harry, when I knew him, was in his late 80s, and he was steeped in Baptist tradition uh, from not just the last century now, but the century before that, do you know? He was, uh, he was alive right at the end of the 1800s. So... Um, he knew how Baptists behaved. It so happened that David Beer used to set all the sermon series. And he decided that we were going to have a sermon series on the signs in John's Gospel. We're doing a sermon series around meals with Jesus. And it so happens that this meal, this drinking session, the turning of the water into wine, is as... Um, Roddy read in the reading from John's Gospel, John says this was the first sign that Jesus did. In actual fact, in John's Gospel, there are only six what we'd call miracles. John never uses the word miracle, he uses the word sign. John's Gospel is really different to the other Gospels. You probably worked that out. Um, John's Gospel is, is, um, is not synoptic. That's the technical word. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. Synoptic is a word that simply means able to be viewed together. Because if you read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll discover they tell lots of the same stories. They have lots of the same sayings of Jesus. They cover the same ground. But John's gospel is completely different. And it's not we believe chronologically organized, it's theologically organized. So, so what John is building is a case about who Jesus is rather than trying to tra trace things as they actually happened. 
And so, right at the head of his gospel is this first sign. Like I say, John doesn't use the word miracle. He only uses the word sign because everything that Jesus does is a sign about who he is. And that's why it's been inserted and included in this theological uh, paper, really, that John has written. He's writing to establish something. It's a theological case for why Jesus is the redeemer of the whole world. So he starts with this first of his signs. Well, back to Tunbridge. There we are. I sit in David Beer's study, as I used to do on a Monday morning. He always used to have a meeting with me on a Monday morning. And he says to me, he says, Steve, we're going to do a sermon series on the signs in John's gospel. John's gospel is full of theological signs, and we're going to start. And we're going to start in two weeks' time. And it's going to be six sermons in the series over six weeks. And I'd only been there about six months, you see. And he said, and the thing is, Steve, I I think it's time for you to really take a lead. So I was, you know, obviously this is playing to my ego. So I'm thinking, ah, yeah, the old man is ready to hand on to some new blood. He says, so I think that you should preach the first of the sermons in the series on the signs of Jesus. I said, are you sure, David? He said, yes. My mind is made up. You should preach the first of these sermons. Well, in those days, I used to live just up the road from um, Tunbridge Baptist Church. I used to go home for lunch. Life was kind of chilled in those days. And, uh, and so I drove uh, this little bit home for lunch uh, to Cornelia, And Cornelia was in, and I said to Cornelia, I said, guess what? I said, you are looking at the man. You are married to the man who is going to preach the first sermon in the series all about the signs in John's gospel. And Cornelia is always down to earth. She said to me, great, what is the first sign in John's gospel? I said, I don't know to tell you the truth, but (laughs) I've got two weeks to find out. So uh, that afternoon, I thought, that's a very good point. So that afternoon, I went back to work, scurried to find my Bible, started looking through John's gospel, get to chapter two, and there it is. The first sign is turning water into wine. This is anathema to anybody who goes to Tunbridge Baptist Church. They are good Baptists. The fact that Jesus turned water into alcohol is a disgrace. It's something they don't want to know about, even if it did happen. And I have got to tell them about it. The two weeks go, and... uh, it's Sunday morning, just like this. Someone stands at the front of this giant auditorium. As you know, there's kind of 700, 800 people in this auditorium, adults, and uh, lots of them very conservative. And uh, so somebody stands up and does this Bible reading, and then I have to come to the front. Having been dropped in it by David Beer, <laughs> and I say, because I'd thought a lot about this, I said, I still remember these words to this day. I said, I thought about this passage a lot. Why does Jesus do this miracle, this sign? 
There are only six signs in the whole of John's gospel. And John chooses to insert this one. And he inserts it first. Why does he do this? In a world of great need, in a world of poverty, in a world where the Romans are kicking the Jews into the ground the whole time, in a world where women are put down, in a world of slavery, in a world of huge need and deprivation, in a world filled with sickness and exclusion. Why on earth does Jesus choose that his first miracle is turning water into wine for people who've already had too much to drink at the wedding? Which, of course, is why there was no wine left. I mean, no no one organizes a wedding without wine. They drunk the wine already. They drunk too much. That's the point. If you get married, you know you plan for the reception. You can find out, as I'll tell you in a moment, exactly how much wine to have. In fact, you can go on the web, you can look, there's a great wine cellar just across uh, there. They will tell you, if you've got this many guests, this is how many bottles of wine you will need. The average guest at a wedding consumes this much wine, order these, this many bottles. That's what you've got to do. So, the guests have already drunk too much wine. They're half cut, I said. No one understood that phrase, so that was okay. (laughs) So I said, so in this world of need, why does Jesus turn water into wine for people who are already drunk? There was a stony silence. This was a question at the heart of their faith. Why would Jesus ever do such an outrageous thing? And then I said, so I thought about it, and I pondered it, and I realized this is the reason. Jesus wanted to announce to everyone, the drinks are on me! (laughs) The drinks are on me! The party's started! Well, this was greeted with so much... You could have cut the atmosphere with a knife. You really could. It was like... So I stumbled on for about another 15 minutes before I finally gave up altogether. After the end of the service, Harry Cork, the old uh, father-in-law of David Beer, came up to me. He used to give out the hymn books. He came up to me. And he, 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 I think he liked me, you know. But he said, young man. I said, yes, Harry. He said, let me tell you this. You won't get very far in this denomination if you preach sermons like that. I said, Harry, I'm really sorry. I, I, I knew it would offend you. I'm really, really sorry. But it, it wasn't, it wasn't my fault. Harry looked at me, it's honestly true, he looked at me and he said, I know, I know it wasn't your fault. 
and I know whose fault it was. And I knew that he was thinking of his son-in-law, David Beer. So I said, no, 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 Harry, because I didn't want to lose my job. I said, it wasn't. I said, it wasn't David's fault. It wasn't his fault. So Harry looked at me again. He said, well, if it wasn't your fault and it wasn't David's fault, whose fault was it? And there was a long silence, and I remember saying, Harry, I, I really don't want to say this to you, but the truth is, it honestly wasn't my fault. I was just preaching about what it says in the text. And it wasn't David's fault, because he just came up with the idea of doing a series on John's gospel. So he repeated it again, well then, whose fault was it? I had to say, Harry, I think it was Jesus' fault. <laughs> And the incredible thing is, he looked at me and he said, you're right. (laughs) He said, it was Jesus' fault, but he was only young at the time. (laughs) He was only young. He would have moved on. Of course, over the years, the uh, 35 years or so, or more, since I gave that talk, I've had lots of opportunity to reflect on exactly why the first um, sign in John's Gospel is the turning of wine, a turning of water into wine for people who'd already consumed too much wine. And I have come to the conclusion these 35 years later, you know, your theological views shift and they change, and hopefully they deepen as you constantly think all these things through. And 35 years later, 35 years after that talk, I have come to the conclusion that I was right. (laughs) Jesus wanted to announce, and John wanted to announce, that the kingdom of God, the coming of Jesus, is a party of inclusion for everyone. Not based on who you are or what you've done or what your behavior is or did you drink too much wine or too little wine. Jesus wanted to announce and John's gospel wants to announce that everyone is invited. Everyone's called, as we sang in our first song as Mark and the band led us, to feast at the table of the Lord. Everyone's in. That is the motif of the gospel. This good news. What what good news is there if that's not the good news? If the good news, the best news about God is some people are invited, some people are in, but some people because of their lifestyle or their history, some people because of who they are have to remain on the edges or excluded altogether. What good news is that to anyone at all, anywhere, including any of us in this room? If God is exclusionary, in the end, we're excluded. In the end, we're worried about where we fit and whether we make the grade and whether our behavior or our thoughts or our words or our actions or our attitudes somehow disqualify us. And endless Christians spend their lives worrying, don't they, constantly about, I said this, I did that, oh dear, perhaps I won't be forgiven. Here is this first announcement. It's the first sign in John's gospel. John's gospel is, as I said, a theological gospel. It's not a synoptic gospel. It's not a chronological account. It's a theological construct. And the first principle is this. The kingdom of God is a party. The drinks are on me and everybody's in. 
Now, actually, the fact is, I did do a little bit of research about this because, as Roddy read, in chapter 6 of John's Gospel, chapter 2, it says that Jesus, uh, Mary was there, so obviously the whole family had been invited to this wedding. You know, weddings were big affairs, just like they are now in our culture. In Jesus' day, and Mary's there because when they run out of wine, it's Mary who says, go ask Jesus, he'll sort it out. So he, she understands his generosity. She gets it. Do you know she understands this? She doesn't say, oh, I'd avoid Jesus if I were you. would be really upset about this. You know, he's kind of pretty religious. You want to stay well clear of my son. He's a religious fanatic. He's an evangelical. Be careful. <laughs> Mary's first motherly response is, go ask Jesus. He's generous. He'll do something. He'll sort us out. And so they go to Jesus, and verse 6 says, and there were six great water containers. And, you know, and there's a guess by John here. He says, you know, containing about 80 to 120 uh, 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 liters each. Well, that's the bit of research I did. I said, if you take six, um, if you take six um, containers full of 80 or 120 uh, liters of wine, how many people at a wedding would that um, be enough wine for? And the answer uh, came back, it would be enough for 2,850 people. That's enough wine for 2,850 people. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Not only just Jesus turned the water into wine, but he makes an awful lot of wine. The kingdom of God is a party, and the party is the party to, uh, to which we're all invited. Now, there's a lot of wine bottles. There's just over 100 wine bottles in that picture. Um, what Jesus actually makes is, uh, I was told by um, uh, the place up the road, if, if, they were, if they were all filled up to 80 litres, that was enough for 640 bottles. And if they, each of the stone jars was act, could actually hold t- uh, 20, 120 litres, it says, Jesus, they were all filled to the brim. If they could each hold 120 litres, that was 960 modern-day uh, 750cc bottles of wine. 960. Everybody is invited, and they're invited uh, to join in. They're invited to join in with this party. And that's what the kingdom of God is, and that's what we're about, inviting people to be included. Here's a picture that will embarrass Caroline, who's sitting there. (laughs) (laughs) That was the celebration after England had actually beaten Colombia in the coffee shop. But you see, the Colombians were joining in with the celebration after they lost. Unlike us miserable English who kind of go, oh, we've lost, let's go home. We had this amazing party in the coffee shop, a party of inclusion and a party of togetherness. It was an astonishing thing. In fact, there were several people there who told me how inclusive and how celebratory they found the whole thing. But I want to introduce you to this man. Does anyone know who this is? It's hard from a, it's not a photograph, obviously. I'll tell you who this is, George Handel. And I'd like to tell you a story about George Handel. Does anyone know who this woman is? I'm sure you don't. Her name's uh, Susanna Kyber. 
And I'd like to tell you a story about George Handel and another one about Susanna Kyber. And then I'd like to finish. George Handel, of course, was German, but made his home here in London. He made his home in here in London because he became extraordinarily popular here. He'd pack out the halls. His music was the music of the day. Everyone wanted to listen to his latest releases, his latest compositions. But in, by 1741, things were changing. Um, Handel used to put together works for what he called a season, a bit like the proms today. So he'd put together new compositions and then he'd run a season and he'd pack wherever he played here in London out. But by, nine, uh, by 1741, his popularity was not just on the wane, but the last two seasons, the last two years, at uh, 39 and 40, had been disastrous. And by April uh, 1741, he made a decision. He made a decision. In fact, he announced it to the public on April the 8th, 1941, that he would move back to Germany. He was abandoned in London. He was bankrupt. He was depressed. He'd become reclusive. And he was lost. So that public announcement was made. But he had a friend. And his friend was a man called Charles Jenners. And Charles Jenners loved George Handel. And hearing about the announcement that Handel was giving up, retiring, and going back to Germany, he went to see his friend, and he gave to him some words that he'd written based on the Bible. Some words that he'd written about the life of Christ. And he asked his friend, George, to write the music for this piece. Handel told him, he was wasting his time. I'm finished. I'm through. My music belongs to yesterday, not today. After months of nagging, the script was delivered in April. After months of nagging, if George Handel could have been on antidepressants, he would have been on antidepressants. He'd locked himself away. His friend Charles kept on chasing him. And finally, on... August the 22nd that year, his friend Charles persuaded him to at least read the words. Handel locked himself away and he read through these words, all straight words from scripture, just put together. And as he read them through, he says his life was changed. He was lost, he was rejected by everyone. He was lonely. He was forgotten. And he read these words and he says that he was inspired again. And sitting down writing through the inspiration that these words brought him, he composed what we now know as the Messiah. It took him 12 days. 12 days. He says that he worked feverishly. He didn't sleep. 
He was so inspired, he couldn't help himself. Let me tell you the story of this woman. Her name, as I said, is Susanna. Susanna Kyber. Susanna Kyber was once one of London's most popular musicians and singers. They say that her voice was like the voice of an angel. She was in every uh, theater. She was a celebrity. Everybody knew her name. She was household. But in 1734, I think it was, yes, 1734, in April 1734, she married, hence her surname, uh, Kyber. She married Theophilus Kyber. He treated her badly. Their marriage was a disaster. He was a womanizer. He um, was in debt. He borrowed money. He used to use her to make money, but it was an abusive relationship. In the end, to make more money, he moved in a friend of his. And the friend ended up having an affair with her. The affair became public because her husband took her and him to court. Her career was finished. She'd been abused and mistreated, but the courts decided in his favor, not her favor. She lost her reputation. She knew that she had to leave. In the end, she ran away with the man that she'd had an affair with. They moved out of London. Their lives finished, rejected. Two people who knew rejection. And so it was that George Frederick Handel came to the park in his writing where he read these words from his friend, Charles Jenner's. He was despised, taken from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 3. Isaiah 53, verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And so it was that George Handel wrote those words into the Messiah in this way. He was despised, despised and rejected, rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows and afflicted with grief. Because it was his story. And he identified with it. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with, with grief. He'd been despised and rejected. He had nowhere to go. He was a bankrupt. He was someone no one wanted. No one wanted to listen to. And so he wrote this beautiful piece, section 23, actually, of the Messiah. He wrote it in. But then, here's what he did. He contacted his friend, Susanna. He's, it said that he wrote it especially for her voice because she was despised and rejected. She was afflicted with grief. She was rejected by men. 
London wasn't accessible to either of them. So George Handel decided that he'd put on the Messiah in Dublin. Perhaps some of you know that. So we took the Messiah to Dublin, and on April the 13th, in 1742, in Dublin, was the first ever, uh, the first ever presentation of this wonderful piece of music. In the audience that night was the dean of St. Patrick's Cathedral. I don't know if you've ever been to St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin. And uh, the dean... Uh, name, he was his, his surname, he was Thomas Dela Delaney is his name. And Sus Susanna Kuyper stood up and sang these words. He was despised, despised and rejected, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And Dr. Delaney, it said, stood up in the box he was seat, uh, sat in, the leading churchman in Dublin, and he shouted at the top of his voice to Susanna on stage, Woman, for this, may all your sins be forgiven. And the audience cheered to the rafters. Do you know something? Though the Messiah was a huge hit in Dublin in 1742, it was never presented in London until 1749, still seven years before it made it from Dublin to London. Do you know why? Because church leaders in London said it was wrong and irreligious for the words of the Bible to be put to music in this way, and that the singers, especially Susanna Kyber, would never be welcome in London. Though the Dublin church had forgiven her, the London church never could. It took seven years to overcome this. But here's the close of the story. When Susanna sang, eventually in London... Everyone stood and cheered. As she sang those words, he was despised, despised and rejected, rejected by men, a man of sorrows and afflicted with grief, a man of sorrows and afflicted with grief. The whole audience knew that this was true of Jesus and it had also been true of her and of George Handel himself. And if you don't believe the story, if after this service, and you're not going to the Jamboree or watching the World Cup with us, you take a short walk to Westminster Abbey, Susanna Kyber is buried now in Westminster Abbey. She came back to London, and David Garrick made her uh, his leading lady. She lived for another 20 years and once again became the darling of the London theatre. She's buried in the abbey. This is what Jesus is talking about. The kingdom of God is a party, and it's a party for everyone. Everyone is invited. 
We've all messed our lives up or had them messed up by others. We're all in a place where we can feel shame. We can feel guilt. We can feel, if only I'd made different choices in a different order on different days. If only I'd gone this way and not that way. We can all feel the pain that other people's bad behavior and bad attitudes and rejection have meant for us. But Jesus stands up in front of these people at a wedding and he produces enough wine for 2,800 people. And he announces, the kingdom of God is a party, and each one of you is invited. That is what the circle of Oasis is about. But much, much more importantly than that, that's what this precious good news we have is all about. The kingdom of God is a party, and you're invited. But the question is this, who else are we called? to invite? Who's been excluded that we are asked to issue an invitation to? Handel was brilliant. He was redeemed as he read those words by his friend Charles Jenner, but he didn't keep it to himself. He included Susanna, his friend, who'd been excluded by everyone else. He could have celebrated his own newfound fame, revived fame and fortune, but he was determined that he would include someone else. We sang, tear down the boundary walls, throw open all the doors. That's what we're called to do. Let's pause and reflect, and then let's see. In a moment of silence, who, you, who are you asked to include? Who do you know that's been excluded? that it's your job to bring in. Tear down the boundary walls. Throw open all the doors. So everyone can feast at the table of the Lord.